Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada's former Governor General has now been named as the special rapporteur to investigate the claims of foreign interference. What's next? Well, we'll talk about that. Legislation buried in Ontario's budget bill could make the government actions immune to civil suits. Andrew Fugelli, a lecturer at the University of Toronto, is going to talk to us about that. And home sale prices have plunged drastically. Are we at the bottom of the real estate market? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, much-anticipated announcement uh, by the Prime Minister of the, uh, well, special rapporteur who's going to look into the foreign interference uh, problems that seem to be going up these days. And Nicole Reese has details for us. David Johnston has been tasked with delving into the allegations of foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections and recommend what the Liberal government should do about it. Johnston's recommendations, which could also involve calling for some other independent review process, will be made public, and the Liberal government has said it will abide by the guidance. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Johnston was appointed after consultations with all parties in the House of Commons. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. So uh, let's talk about the announcement itself and the ramifications of, and to do that, uh, please to welcome back to the program, Mohamed Ali, who was the uh, senior consultant at Crestview Strategies. Uh, Mohamed, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of anticipation about this. Uh, it was about 11 days ago, I guess, that the Prime Minister said this was the strategy that he was going to follow. And uh, there was a lot of speculation about who it might or might not be. Uh, Pierre Polyev, I think, said that it doesn't matter. It's, it's a nothing job. Uh, they'll just appoint a liberal hack. Uh, that, that seemed to be his impression. So we got to know where he's coming from on this. But what's, what's, what have you heard? What's the reaction to the announcement about David Johnson as, as the person who's going to head this? Look, I think... Um the Conservatives have sort of shared, if you've seen some of the reaction online, that they are already assuming that this there will be no public inquiry. And um, the NDP, you know, David Johnson it, it comes from a very reputable background. He was seen as nonpartisan as an appointee from, he was, con, you know, former Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper's appointee as Governor General. Uh, he's a uh, incredible background as a law professor. He's involved with the elections panel for you know, setting up the debates, like he's been very interconnected uh, in a number of areas that help sort of define and, and protect and, and and talk about sort of democracy as, as, a, as an entirety. So overall, I think the reaction will be largely mute, I think, because folks believe that David Johnson is a good person and, and they all liked it when he was governor general. So there was never any, any issues back then. And so I expect that for the most part, temperatures should likely cool down. I think this is a good choice by the prime minister to take someone who is well-respected uh, amongst all parties, amongst all partisans, and the general public of, in Canada. Uh, and I've seen some of the negative comments too, not so much from the politicians, but from a couple of the uh, small C conservative uh, commentators that are just saying, well, you know, he's he's a family friend of the Trudeau family. <laughs> uh, but you've been following politics for a long time. And, and really to that point, uh, if you're in this business for a period of time, you know everybody. That doesn't mean that the, you know you're tight friends and you have dinner once a week or anything, but you're you know you're, you're cordial with them. And I, I don't know what the relationship is, but that column I saw this morning was the first time I'd ever heard that uh, Daniel uh, that uh, Johnson was was a friend of the Trudeau family. You get to know each other in that in that. So I, I'd be dismissive of that. And besides, as you just mentioned, look at the guy's reputation. 
I mean, he's not a partisan, never has been, and uh, and has done everything he's been asked to, you know, as a public servant for many, many years. Why not, uh, you know, and and see what he's going to do here, uh, which I guess follows the next question here is, is what's he going to do? I mean, what is the mandate for this? I, the prime minister wasn't really clear on that yesterday. I, I, we still have some questions to be answered here, don't we? Yeah, look, I think there's details to come still, and uh, he will... Like ultimately, you also want to ensure that this new role that David Don- David Johnson is uh, taking on is allowing him to be independent in his review, and it's up to him to determine what is the conclusion, what evidence does he need, what does he need to go through, who does he need to talk to. I mean, this is ultimately uh, his domain to understand, unpack this situation. And the prime minister uh, will sort of outline, I think, the the structures and parameters in which like, hey, look, we need this addressed. Here's the interference concerns that we are having. Uh, You have the experience and the background and and relationships beyond just simply those who are in elected office right now. You'll also be able to connect with others that give you a better understanding of what is the role, like what, what has happened in the background that over the last two elections that need to be unpacked? Is there a need for public inquiry? Would a different type of inquiry uh, suffice? Is there other tools that need to be introduced? Like these are, there are different things that will come about. And I think we can just predefine right now. And, and I think folks will like to define this right now, particularly for certain opposition parties of like what they expect to see. But ultimately I expect this to be as open enough for David Johnson to take on this difficult and very, very politically charged and sensitive issue that he will need to navigate very, very carefully. Should we, though, manage our expectations about what uh, Mr. Johnson's going to be able to tell us uh, when he is finally finished, or at least, you know, says, okay, this is as far as I'm going to go on this. Uh, because we are dealing here with, with a lot of sensitive documents. And, uh, you know, some of them are what we call top secret. I mean, they're confidential because they had to do with national security. That's that's seems to be the foundation for what the concern is here. Uh, and there's no way we're ever going to see those documents. I mean, you know, it's it's like when the Mueller report finally came out, all this anticipation, and the tons of pages were redacted. And, and I can understand why, because it's it's not for our eyes. So, you know, I, I don't know that we're going to find out everything that we need to know or want to know about this particular situation through this or any other kind of investigation. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is going to be a, a challenge. I think the prime minister has sort of articulated this. There are pieces, and this is where part of the challenge around the ceases leaks where there are recommendations and intelligence gathering that are done, but it's it, it's a bit different than, than how, say, police investigate something, right? Or how do you unpack evidence? Like, you, he will have to unpack what is conjecture and what is actual fact. And that is part of a, what is really sort of created a, a, a shadow, uh, a cloud right now over this entire issue is, is making sure we're unpacking correctly what actually happened in terms of potential interference did it happen were we were thwarted was there other tools that were needed to help sort of make it more uh, certain that we were are uninterfered and how do we better address future instances of interference right it, you know china is not going to be the only one you know canada will have to monitor any other country that could potentially see as a future threat towards our democracy 
So these are all the different components, and it will be difficult. Um, and we'll probably have sort of condensed versions because there will be classified information that just we are not privy to to see. Yeah, and, and MPs might be able to see it. My understanding is that they do have access to that uh, in some circumstances, but we don't. Uh, and even at, at that last point, because I saw one of the conservative members of the of the Heritage Committee that was talking about this the other day, saying, well, you know, what's going to be the plan going forward? I, we, we have to be very careful even about talking about that, don't we? Because <laughs> our adversaries are listening too, and we don't want to give away the game plan here. Uh, I think the first takeaway here is that we need to step up our game here. Uh, when it comes to national security, and and that's not a new story. We, you know, I've been talking about that for the last couple of years now. That uh, that you know, there's uh, a world's a more dangerous place right now, and I don't know that we've put the resources into into security that we probably should have. But I mean, this is a kind of a wake up call in a way, isn't it? Yeah, there there is so much more to unpack here, and and I think this was this is a a good push towards making sure. I think governments historically have have not taken this issue to its full degree that of, of actually addressing it properly. And I think this will help sort of push the and, and to your earlier point, there are other tools that the prime minister has enacted, uh, such as the national security and intelligence review committee by parliamentarians, by the review agency, um, and also looking to build that foreign agents registry as well, which, you know, some of our allies, you know, the Americans have had it for a very long time, but you know, the Brits are right now, um, introducing like, introduce legislation on that. The Australians are doing the same thing. So, you know, there are also other allies that are in the same space because ultimately what we, we all as a public should remember is that no uh, democracy in this world has figured out how to deal with this issue and how to deal with election interference. We all forget that Russia did a pretty possibly decent job of, of really uh, using bots and other things that impacted the Americans. And there are questions around other democracies that have been impacted from foreign interference. So no one has figured this out. This is a, a right now, everyone is trying to figure out what is the solution? How do we deal with it? And what actions can we take that will legitimately protect us and thwart threats that are to come? And that's a point worth remembering, isn't it? I mean, I, we just referenced the, the Mueller report from a couple of years ago. Uh, let's face it. I mean, that whole thing was started to try to explore Russian interference. Uh, the Donald Trump stuff was an interesting sidebar, and it became actually the story that everybody wanted to find out about. And, you know, are there going to be charges laid, et cetera? But that that was not the original mandate that Mueller had. And, and even though, you know, he didn't make any recommendation about charging, you know, this person or that person or even Trump, there was significant proof, not just speculation, but proof in the Mueller report about Russian interference in those last uh, two American elections. So it's there. And, and as, as you've told us in the past, it's not just Russia and China. I mean, there's a lot of other players here, North Korea, Iran, Iraq. I mean, you go down the list here, uh, a number of different, uh, uh, well, adversarial powers right now uh, that are playing this game. So you know, we, we know, that's that's something we have to be cognizant of, I think. For sure. And, and I think this is, this is, and it has, it has to be treated as a nonpartisan issue. Um, and political party leaders need to recognize that because at some point, one of them will also be in governing power. This is how our democracy works. It's, you know, there's always a change that takes place. And the next person has to deal with this issue. It's not just the current government. It's, it's not just the next government. It's the government after that and after that. And we have to really take pride and rational and appropriate measures to say, 
we need to protect ourselves. How do we solve that? Let's work together. I think that is where this issue and sometimes the, the rhetoric from opposition parties are just more politically charged. There are some who have been very close to say within the conservative circles that said, you know what, this is a public inquiry does not actually help because we actually do need to unpack and really fix this issue internally and, and deal with ish information that cannot be disclosed to the public for national security reasons. So there, it really needs to come from a nonpartisan and just uh, fact-based national security perspective and not just sort of convenience or political theater at this point. Very quickly, i got a minute or two left here. Is the government now going to be able to say, okay, we can set this aside, put it on the back burner now and let uh, Mr. Johnson do his job? Uh, because there's some uh, more pressing issues here. And, and that's not to diminish this issue at all, but uh, there's a budget next week. And, and there could well be, well, there will be a, a vote on the budget, which is a confidence vote. Uh, and, and you know, even now, Mr. Singh and Mr. Pauly are making, you know, suggestions, shall we say, about what they want to get in here. So these guys have got to start focusing over here now and, and kind of set this aside for a little bit, don't they? I think this is an issue that will be hard to sort of put to the side and to say it's now David Johnson. I think that will take up some of the time and and sort of attention towards there. There are other measures being taken and avenues. So and and also we we don't know if there's more to this store. We don't know what's what is his ceases leak. What more details are going to be uh, released to the public? As a in, in, the, in the near term or in the long term, so there are those issues that we that could keep this issue going. And yeah, there's a budget, and you know, I, while yes, I think the NDP are making life very difficult for, for the Liberals, and and as any opposition party, that's their job uh, and to hold them to account. I don't expect the NDP to not support this budget. Um, they also have a lot riding on it. Um, they have affordability measures. There are other components within healthcare that they're looking at, you know, in the environment as well that will be introduced in this budget. And so for them to vote against it and risk and sort of plunge us into an election, because it would be a confident vote, uh, that will be very foolhardy. And they do not have an argument to make that would suggest that they have the credibility to tell Canadians that, yes, we need an election right now. When in fact, things were working, there were goals that were going to be achieved that were aligned, um, they will look like, they will look bad amongst voters if they choose that path. So I don't expect them to vote against this budget. I think this budget will pass. Uh, there, you know, there's a little detail in negotiations that are taking place right now, but, you know, th- that will be the next focus for this government and, and for the House of Commons. And we're still in a danger zone here. It is a minority government and things can change, as you say, dramatically. And, and you know, the, the ice that the government's on right now is about as thin as the ice on the Rideau Canal, I guess, this winter. Uh, so they're going to have to <laughs> tread carefully on this, aren't they? Oh, yeah. I love that metaphor. But yeah, it's... Uh, it's <laughs> you can borrow it's it, Mohammed. Definitely. It's yours now. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely something to, to watch. And I think next, you know, as we look to the future, yeah, we are we are kind of past the sort of timeline of what a normal cadence of a, of a minority parliament usually lasts. It's always on average about 18 months, um, sometimes to two years. You know, we'll be, you know, moving in that sort of territory of, of a bit of the un, slightly unknown in sort of modern times. And, the, you know, we'll have to see how 2024 plays out for a budget. Uh, there's exactly. all the loss to come and the fall has, and, you know, a month in politics is a lifetime. So it's, <laughs> it's there's a lot to see and unpack, but uh, I don't expect an election 
uh, in the next couple months, to be honest. <laughs> hope not. Hope not. Okay. Well, my, and we'll talk about those as they come up. Mohammed, as always, thanks. Uh, stay off the uh, the Rito, and uh, we'll talk again in the next few days when we get closer to the budget. Take care. Will do. Thanks. Bye. Mohammed Ali, Senior Consultant with Crestview Strategy. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. And I fought the law and the law one. I fought the province and the province one. That could be the song we're all going to be humming if a certain piece of legislation goes through. And uh, it's actually buried in, in the budget bill that uh, we're going to be talking about uh, when uh, Minister Bethan Falvey uh, presents his budget in just a couple of days. Uh, but there's a great deal of concern, uh, in not just in the legal community, but I think we should all be concerned about this, about some of the restrictions it's put on. Uh, basically, uh, this legislation is uh, to repeal and replace the longstanding Ontario Proceedings Against the Crown Act. Uh, and what does it mean to you? Well, our next guest can explain that to you. Andrew Fuggielli is a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto, and joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Andrew, great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be on, Bill. Good to talk to you. Now, the existing legislation, as I understand it, uh, the Ontario Proceedings Against the Crown Act, basically lays out the groundwork and the guardrails. If you feel as if uh, you've been wronged and you want to take legal action against the province, uh, this is how you do it. This is the process that has to go through. And basically, they, they want to replace that. Is that is that what I'm seeing? That's right. They want to they repeal that act uh, and replace it with an act that makes it a lot more difficult to sue the government. Um, and, and essentially what it does is... Uh, it puts in place a higher barrier, a higher hurdle for you to be able to clear before you can actually sue the government uh, for legislation or regulations or governmental action that affects you. Um, right now, you can use negligence to sue the government. If the government is negligent in, in an action it takes in legislation, a draft, uh, etc., um, you can sue them. Now they want to replace that with legislation that means you have to show bad faith on the, on the part of government. And, and that's a very high hurdle uh, uh, to clear for anybody. There are instances where bad faith exists as a prerequisite for somebody um, to show that governmental action was improper. And, and it's, it's almost an impossible barrier to get over. And that would now be transplanted into, into the civil realm for proceedings where people want to sue the government. Oh, and some of these things may be, you know, obvious to people, you know, the, the, the idea that harm could be caused. Uh, but the onus is still on the complainant, isn't it, to prove this? I mean, you're innocent until proven guilty, and that falls for the government, too. So it's not as if you could just say, hey, I'm going to sue the premier, and, and I'll get myself a nice little payday, and I can you know, go happily ever after. It's a long, onerous, and I would imagine rather expensive process. Uh, but they're not even allowing you this to, to begin the process now. At least they yeah, won't. there's a part of the legislation that says you have to actually get leave to uh, be able to even start the process against the government, which is an additional hurdle. And leave tests almost invariably become more strict over time as the courts deal with them. Uh, they become a higher and higher hurdle in themselves, in and of themselves, to be able to get over to, to sue the government. And, and look, Bill, there's a balance here. Um, you, you don't want it to go too far to the point where anybody can sue the government and have a very good chance of success because there's a concern that uh, there'd be a chilling effect there 
we, we want our governments uh, to, to feel free to be able to enact legislation that it believes it are in, is in the public good. But on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you end up cutting off the only mechanism of relief people really have uh, to be able to hold government account if their actions, like their legislation or their regulation or something their government employees do uh, or the, the, the ministers do, etc., um, uh, causes harm to people. This is the only route they really have to be able to uh, get some sort of redress for that. And, and the leave hurdle is an additional one, and it becomes a very high one over time. And, and the, I'm just looking at the bigger picture here because, you know, especially when it comes to things like some of the policies vis-a-vis you know, highway construction or, or, you know, conservation authorities, there's a bunch of stuff where people have actually uh, considered legal action against the government because they, they disagree with the policies. And I don't want to get into the debate about who's right or who's wrong there, but at least there was a process that was in place. Uh, but this pretty much uh, it, it takes people out of the running. And I, one of the more troubling aspects of it, as I read it anyway, Andrew, is that if you've if you've got a case in the mix right now? I mean, you know, it's in the process. You're, uh, it's it's dead. I mean, there's no grandfathering here. If uh, you know, if this passes, then and you thought, okay, we got a pretty good shot because of of the case we're going to present. They don't care. Uh, the, the law will just basically wipe out everything that's on the books too. Yeah, I'm glad you, you highlighted that, Bill, because that is a very troubling aspect. And, and there are times when governments have tried to go down this road where uh, their, uh, you know, government officials have done things that were against the law. And the government says, well, we're going to change the law to retroactively apply. So even though you were breaking the law when you uh, uh, did what you did, now you're covered because we're going to change it. We're going to say uh, that that uh, you're, you're not deemed to have been breaking the law back then, even though it was what you did was against the law. And they've done it. Governments have tried to do that from time to time. And it really goes against the core principle of, of the rule of law, which is the idea it is, you know, you get to access the law or you are subject to the law as it existed at the time that you're doing something. Uh, and so for the individuals who are currently suing the government, you're quite right. They had a legal landscape in front of them. In good faith, they came forward with their litigation against the government with the act that was in place, that is in place right now, and that the government's trying to repeal. And, and by making it retroactive, um, you're, you're essentially wiping out uh, uh, what they uh, did and what they believe they could do. So that sort of retrospectivity is always uh, viewed very suspiciously uh, amongst uh, lawyers and legal scholars. And, and uh, I, I think that that suspicion is, is well cast this time around as well. But it's as you said at the beginning of the conversation, how can you prove intent? And, and I know in criminal cases that that seems to be one of the uh, the key aspects of, of any trial against somebody. But, uh, you know, in, you know, I, OK, I'm going to build a highway there. Well, that's going to ruin the water table and you're going to kill my crops. I'm a farmer and you, you put me out of business. All they have to come back and say, I guess, Andrew, is why well, we didn't know didn't do that on purpose. Sorry. And that pretty much lets them off the hook. That's right. So proving bad faith is very difficult. You need access. You need discovery of government documents. And you would need essentially a smoking gun in there where where they would say, you know, on your example, they would say, you know what, I want to pass this legislation to ruin this farmer and ruin this water table. Or, yeah, the water table is going to be ruined. This farmer is going to be ruined. But who cares? Uh, and, and frankly, that evidence almost never exists. 
And, and there are also going to be instances where, um, you know, access to government documents that might have that smoking gun in it are incredibly limited. And, and government assertions of good faith will be enough to carry the day. And if you pair that with the leave part of this that, that we talked about earlier, where you're going to need leave to, to sue the government, when you ha- have that hurdle, you have to show a case that is arguable at that stage. And without this sort of evidence, it's difficult to see how a lot of people are going to be able to get leave because the test is so high if you do get leave even that the court's going to look at you and say you don't have any basis to believe that this smoking gun of bad faith exists. And so the leave hurdle becomes that much more difficult for people to get over. I got a minute left, but I got one, I think, very salient question I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, do you anticipate that th- this is, by the way, not passed yet? It, it's in this bill, which is will be passed because they are a majority government. Uh, do you anticipate there may well be a charter challenge to this? Yes. And, uh, well, there will be court challenges to it. And, and one of the things that is left open from this bill is that uh, uh, you can still sue the government uh, under the more permissive test. Uh, for the if there's a charter issue from the government action. So yes, there will be challenges to this bill, to the bill itself. Uh, but even if the bill passes, people will still be able to sue the government um, under the more relaxed rules if their charter rights have been breached as a result of what the government has done. Lots more to come on this, clearly. Andrew, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. Talk to you soon, Bill. You betcha. Andrew Fugielli uh, from Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If the internships stay at where they are right now, which we have understood that they are, I do see prices shifting. I do see people wanting to jump on things. People have been waiting for a long time, and those people are hungry and anxious to buy. That's uh, Teresa Mazahari, who is a, a real estate agent in Vancouver. Uh, with uh, Well, she thinks some positive vibes about what's happening. You know, I know the Vancouver market's different than just about anywhere else in the country. Uh, but maybe there's some positive out of some of these uh, troubling numbers. We'll get to that in just a second. Glad you're with us. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. And uh, it's it's been something that uh, has, well, first of all, shocked us because of how crazy it got a few years ago with prices that were just ridiculous, uh, you know, bidding on houses, et cetera. And, and then, of course, well, maybe bottomed out. Uh, prices have dropped considerably. People that were thinking about buying and, and moving or downsizing, any number of different rationale, have all of a sudden said, I got to stay put where I am. The, the market's just not the right place for it now. But is that changing? Uh, let's talk about that with our next guest. He is uh, Frank Clayton, a senior research fellow with the Center for Urban Research and Land Development at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, Frank, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Glad to be here. You know, when we talked about this in the past, Frank, oftentimes, like, you know, the numbers we get here, it's a snapshot of what's happening that particular time, and it, it can change dramatically very quickly, as we've seen in the past. But but is there some positive feeling about some of the, the news that's on here? I know the prices are still not where people want them. Uh, availability and, 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 you know, market share is, is not where it should be right now. Uh, but if we bottomed out, I guess that's the question a lot of people are asking. Well, I, I think uh, the the latest data certainly seems to give that impression, uh, particularly in the uh, well across the country, but particularly in the uh, Greater Toronto and Hamilton uh, area. The uh, it seems to be we're we're kind of uh, in a balanced market as opposed to a uh, a buyer's market just a couple months ago. So, uh, uh, because what's happening is uh, sales are starting to turn around, 
but uh, supply uh, listings are, are still very, very low. People are just reluctant to put their listings. So if listings stay low and they, you know, demand starts to pick up, of course, uh, prices will start moving, which they did a little bit in February. But you can't go one month does not make a trend. But mm-hmm. but it seems to be that uh, if 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 the big if here is if interest rates stay where they are right now and don't go higher then we're going to have a new equilibrium come in the marketplace and people will start buying again. Not, 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 not to the numbers that they did, you know, a year and a half ago, which was a crazy, it was a crazy uh, level of activity. Uh, but, you know, because we got such a huge uh, uh, latent demand for, for particularly ground-related housing, single semis and townhouses, and this immigration influx is is, is huge. So, so, uh, uh, so we put these two together and people are still creating jobs, uh, you know, the companies are, so, uh, you know, everything's very positive there, except the, the price of housing's out of whack and, it, you know, prices have come down, but of course, interest rates went up. So affordability is about the same as it was, <laughs> you know, hasn't really changed that much, but just more people feel comfortable about going into the marketplace now, it seems. Yeah. And that was the double whammy before, wasn't it? I mean, you know, it, you know, a house that was a million five is, was probably selling for seven, eight hundred thousand uh, dollars but the interest rate was considerably higher than, than it was before that. So it, as far as the consumers were concerned, there were no bargains out there, were there? No, no, that's right. So that's where we were. Um, and, and you mentioned, of course, one month does not a trend to make. Uh, we, we've got to be a little more patient about these. We're almost at the end of March right now. Uh, if you continue to see positive signs by, well, fill in the blank there, uh, June, maybe, that, that maybe there's a trend there? Well, I think uh, I think there there is actually – I think we are at uh, – as I say, the big question that we don't know, and the Bank of Canada is saying it's not going to raise interest rates for a little while, but if the interest rates don't go up, then I think we're probably uh, we're probably uh, at uh, close to the bottom, and that the prices will not be going down anymore, uh, on average, you know, different uh, places. And, and the, the March information I get, uh, you know, I read about anecdotal and so on, is that March is uh, uh, is being a qu- quite a good month that pe- places are starting to pick up. And what happened in the marketplace is like Toronto was booming. And then uh, prices went way up, so every you know people started moving to places like Hamilton, Barrie, and so on, and Guelph, and so on. And then the last year or so, people have been pulling back from those areas. So, so the uh, what I call the fringe municipalities, prices have dropped more than the city of Toronto. But it's now it seems to be that people are starting to look again places like Barrie and Hamilton, and so on. So, so I, I suspect the market has reached reached the bottom. They can't really expect prices to drop much more, subject to what happens to interest rates. Because if interest rates go up, prices will go down some more. Well, that's what I think put a lot of scare into people even this week, wasn't it, uh, Frank? When uh, you know, the big thing now, of course, is the price of food and groceries, and and you know, in the inflation rate, and uh, you know, even then, uh, you know, the Mr. Macklin of the Bank of Canada was suggesting, look, uh, maybe we got to knock the interest rate up a few more points here to try to to, to get that inflation down. It's what it's a little under six percent right now, but they're still shooting for two, uh, which means we've got a ways to go. Two to three, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, you know, it's a, it's not a given that it's not going to go up. I I, I suspect there, there could be some increases, but offsetting that now is the banking uh, sector fears going in, are on in the states and over in Switzerland. 
which means that ba- bankers will be a little, uh, the central banks will be a little more careful about, you know, they got two, two, two uh, problems now. They got inflation, but they also got to have confidence in the banking system. So they're, they, they can't keep interest rates going up if, uh, if they're going to make the financial system, uh, uh, have more problems. So they got, they got a balancing act there. So I think that'll be a bit of a restraint on the rates going up. Um, well, probably, uh, the, and, best, the best thing is if government government would just start, start cutting spending <laughs> and deficits, that would help uh, inflation. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, just from the, the, you know, the words we're getting from the, the prime minister and the finance minister about the federal budget, uh, you know, they're talking about more assistance packages. And I'm not suggesting we don't need them. But uh, like you say, government spending is one of the driving forces in inflation. And, and sometimes you I mean, you can be your own worst enemy in government when you do that. But sometimes, as you said, uh, and you've reminded us in the past, global circumstances can be a factor in this, too. I, I remember 2009. Uh, having well, the late Jim Flaherty when he was finance minister on the program, and he said, Look, you know, with the stuff was already starting to happen with Fannie Mae and everything down in the states. He says, no, we've got a much better, you know, banking system here. It's much more structured. Uh, the safeguards are in place. But when everything starts falling down around you, you're going to be impacted, aren't you? Yeah, you, you can't. We, uh, we 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 get we did get protected back in 2008, so we were yeah. uh, for that that time. And I think again, right now, our financial system. The fact, as uh, I read someplace recently, said, you know, we we sometimes complain about our banks because they're an oligopoly. You know, they, there's only five or six big ones, uh, and uh, and that's bad for you know price price fixing and so on for uh, and keeping interest rates low on the deposits. But uh, the other thing is they're very strong banks. <laughs> so, so when there yeah. is a financial crisis, uh, we're, we're protected. What about, let's talk a little bit about one of the things that in your wheelhouse. And it, it's, you know, we're talking about urban growth and we know that we're going to grow. We know we need to grow because, as you mentioned, the immigration uh, issues are coming in and, and you know, we got to find places for these people to live. But the debate about how cities are going to grow is still very much alive and still very polarizing. Uh, that's got to be resolved in some way, shape or form, doesn't it? Well, at some point it does, because we got the politicians, we got the environmentalists saying everybody should be in an apartment by transit. <laughs> you know, that's where we get affordable housing, which is a little strange because usually the land costs are highest around places where there's good transit. Yeah. But anyway, and though, though, despite the fact that Toronto Real Estate, the Greater Toronto Real Estate Board just came out with another poll, which they do once a year uh, through Ipsos, what kind of, are you intending to buy a household in the next 12 months? What kind of housing do you want? 80% of the people answering says, I want a ground-related housing unit. 20% says they want an apartment. Yet the planners and the environmentalists are saying, well, forget you what you want. We think it's best for you that you live in an apartment. And it's time, I think gradually, we're going to get more and more, and the provincial government is moving in this direction listening to what the people want, because if you just don't provide what the people want, they'll do something you don't plan on, like they'll move farther out, <laughs> and then there'll be more sprawl, because they're looking for a ground-related housing unit. So, so it's just it's this, this you know, dichotomy about what, what people want and what the environmentalists think they should have. Well, and and you're right. I mean, this is this is going to be customer driven, and it always has been. And you, I don't want to live in a high rise, and and that's just me. You know, I've, I've did that when I was about nineteen or twenty, or whatever it was when I got out of college. And and I, I like a house. I like a, a, a backyard, and I, you know. And I, I think a lot, as you mentioned, a lot of people feel that way, uh, and and the market will dictate that. And we saw that happen during the pandemic, didn't we? But a lot of that. 
uh, had different motivations, I guess. But, uh, you know, as, as you've talked about, uh, we've we got family up in Barrie and around the Collingwood area. Uh, every time we go up there, there, there's a new housing development going up. And I talked to one of the guys, one of the, the developers, and he says, he says, these people are all coming from Hamilton, Toronto. And, and, you know, they, yeah. they can't get what they want there. And they said, you know what, I'm going to work remotely or I'm going to retire early or whatever, but I want a house and, and I'll get it built here if I can't get it built there. Yeah, yeah. It's really either a house or a townhouse or even a stack townhouse where, where yeah. you can still get ground, you know, a door on the ground and uh, so on. And, and a lot of people just want that. Whether I, I always just say whether they have they're planning on having a kid or a dog, <laughs> they want to be close to the ground. Uh, oh, absolutely. The, uh, so, so what's going to happen is uh, so if you're going to uh, you know uh, what it means is that because the supply is going to be li- restricted on on, on ground related housing as I call it, single semis townhouses. The prices have to be going up, so it's a good investment. <laughs> yeah. So, what about? You know, I know this is getting into the financial end of things, but that's still a factor in, in a housing purchase. Is there some opportunity here for the banks to be a little more flexible, about, not just about qualifying for mortgages, but the, the kind of product that they can offer right now to make it a little more feasible for people to jump in? There's not a lot they can do because of the interest rates where they are. I mean, people jumped in when the variable rate. Uh, mortgages with rates are very, very low for the variable yeah. rate mortgage. Of course, now variable rate mortgages has gone up quite a bit. Uh, and so people tie in at five and they're going to tie in at a, you know, a fairly high rate. I suspect rates aren't going to be coming down very much in the next uh, two or three years. Uh, I suspect rates are going to, we're going to have to live with the rates where they are. But uh, I, uh, and the, uh, the, the biggest problem is in the federal government where they, they, they have this um, uh, stress test. Where your 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 yeah. borrowers uh, have, have to have an even higher interest, you know, they're tested against an even higher interest rate. So I think they should loosen up that, particularly on refinancing. When people, you know, renew their their mortgages, they shouldn't have to go through a, st- a stress test again, which they apparently do right now. So, uh, so there's really not too much. Uh, that, you know, the the mortgage instrument is kind of governed by the, the federal government uh, through you know CMHC and so on. So, um, they, um, so there's not too much they can really do other than react. Yeah, but I've heard that same thing about the stress test. I mean, you've got people that have maybe been homeowners for years now, mortgage comes due and they've got to go through the test. And if their financial situation has changed, it may still be workable for them. But, you know, if you don't meet that threshold, uh, what do you do? Where do you go? Uh, and, you know, yeah. th- there's got to be some flexibility at that end. But that's that's something that we're going to have to talk about, I guess, because it's, it's going to be a growing problem. But you do yeah. see, uh, I, I guess to use the old cliche, a light at the end of the tunnel. It may be quite a bit into the distance right now, but uh, the, maybe our, our darkest days with real estate over now, for now? Oh, I I, I would say so. I mean, my, that's my gut feel, but I, I'm going to qualify it subject to what happens to interest rates. If interest sure. rates go another percentage point or more, I mean, we, we it's going to be negative, you know, quite negative for the market because prices will, you know, demand, you know, fewer people will be able to afford to buy or will even willing to buy and uh, the prices will drop some more. But uh, that's that's the caveat that I just you know I can't predict that. <laughs> I'm hoping that interest rates will not go up uh, uh, much more, if if at all, uh, and just hope hope that's the, the way it's going to be. But we can, you know who knows really exactly. Then that's that's the whole thing. Who knows these days, uh, Frank? It's always a pleasure to get you on the program and get your perspective on this stuff. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, Bill. Glad to do it. You take care. Frank Clayton, a senior research and fellow. He's at the Center for Urban Research and Land Development at uh, Metropolitan University in Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.